0: so where's the money going to come from? And I'm much less willing to to like sort of bet on people's altruism. I believe in it. It exists. It clearly happens, but that's not a scalable.
1: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast. The show where we understand the path to a better future often requires cleaning up the destruction of the past. In today's episode, we're hiking into the forest to learn how one company has combined technology, plant cultivation and carbon offset credits into a solution that allows landowners to reforest their land devastated by wildfires at no cost to them. Intrigued? Me too. That's why we're talking about it today. But before we get to the show, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of the award-winning Technica Communications and I help lead the women of women in clean tech and sustainability. If it's your first or 50th time listening to the podcast, thank you very much for being a part of our community. We deeply appreciate you. We encourage you to follow us on social media and also leave us a review. You don't have to leave us any words, just punch in a few stars in your Apple or podcast, uh, Spotify app. And you know, just let us help others find the show. You can also visit our Patreon page and become a financial contributor to the show. And that's going to help support the whole production staff here at earthlings 2.0. If you've joined Patreon, I'll give you a shout out on the show. And now a short message from the resource labs network. Now, we all know wildfires are a big problem around the world. If you're curious about the full extent of what we can expect in the future, go to your podcast app and look up the first episode of season two, Living with Wildfire. It was that show where we detailed what's causing these megafires, whether or not the size and intensity are really a new phenomenon, and how we can learn to adapt to wildfires as they increase, because we all know they're going to get more prevalent. Today, we explore what happens when the fire is out. Because as we learned from Neil Dyckman in season 14 of this season three, we have to have the carbon sinks working with us, not against us. And forests are a big part of that. Now, to give you some context, uh, American forests alone have the ability to sequester up to 12% of the country's carbon emissions. Now the Amazon rainforest absorbs one-fourth of the CO2 absorbed by all the landmass on earth. It's a lot. And you know, in the 1990s, it could do 60% more before deforestation became so prevalent. Now the challenge is without concerted efforts, forests are having a harder and harder time regrowing on their own. In fact, the Nature Conservancy found high elevation forests especially are going to need a lot of help in the future to regenerate. This is because a warmer and drier planet means that the window of opportunity for seedlings and new trees to establish themselves after a fire is expected to be shorter. That's why we wanted to speak with someone who's on the front lines of reforesting our world. So the company we're speaking with started out as drone seed. Now they're known as mass reforestation. In the early days of its development as drone seed, the startup attempted to solve this real challenge of replanting forests by hand. So they came up with an idea to literally shoot seedlings into the ground using drones. Pretty cool, right? Um, Fast Company also thought it was really cool. And they gave uh, DroneSeed the world's most innovative company in robotics in 2021. Now, before our guest, CEO Grant Canary, became a modern Johnny Appleseed, he founded and exited Biosystems in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, that company utilized food waste in industrial fish feed. And he also held positions at Vestas, which is an international wind energy company. With mass reforestation, Grant and his team have evolved their efforts beyond just planting seedlings to managing the whole process of bringing forests back to life.
0: What became apparent over time is that due to the size and severity of wildfires, fueled in part by climate change, fueled in part by management practices, we are seeing the supply chain just get completely overwhelmed and it was a a much more holistic need than a last mile need and so to simplify it and keep it so that it's digestible for an audience here like take it to four pillars which is where does the seed come from we use software that is uh, to organize how we do the collections of seed then the next is where do you grow that seed into a seedling, which is the most efficient form of use of seed at present, which is very important because there's not enough seed and nothing happens without seed. And so we utilize automation and are in the process of uh, doing much more sophisticated greenhouses to grow a purpose grown seedlings for post-fire environments. There's the third pillar, which is how do you get it out to site and planted? That's where we started that uh, last mile problem. And then there's a big one, how do you pay for it all? And that's where carbon removal credits come in, which is uh, much more of a FinTech product, but nothing happens without the capital. And one of the things that I will speak to here is that what I was taught in high school bio was forest burns, forest regrows, not a problem. So why why do we need to do all this work? What we've seen over time here is that, yeah, it used to be a forest burns, forest regrows, 90, 95% of the time. But now we're seeing some very large analyses in the white papers that are seeing that that has dropped to 40 to 70 percent of the time. And due to the size increase at the same time, to see those natural regeneration rates drop precipitously, that's a lot of acreage is just not coming back as forest and is not capturing carbon in nearly the same way. And what does come back often is invasive species himalayan blackberries scotch broom and in the northwest that are much more likely to burn in the future uh because they don't they're not adapted to the local ecosystem and so they are they do not retain moisture through the dry season in nearly the same way as local or native plants and species that kind of have it in you know genetic like hold on to the moisture during the uh the dry season so that's where we got started and that's how we evolved
1: Thank you for that because, you know, on the PR side, I'm always telling my clients, like, it's great to have a technology, but you also have to have a good business model. And when you can couple two, those two things together, you can have a really successful company. Uh, and so I'm <clears throat> one of the things that attracted me to the work you're doing is this the supply chain work you're doing and the carbon credits because uh, I, I haven't seen other uh, reforestation activities utilize the carbon credit aspect of of what can be done uh, through reforestation uh, to help pay for it. So I think that's that's pretty innovative. But how do you run the carbon uh, credit side of the business?
0: Well, uh, let's let's take it from the land uh, manager perspective. So if you're a timber company, if you're a tribal nation, if you're a small family forest, if you're public lands, if you're a nonprofit like the Nature Conservancy. If You're impacted by wildfire, and those natural regeneration rates are not there, and you do not want invasive species to to grow on the property. Like, what do you do? Well, there is a, a couple of options that aren't great. You can take it's a couple million bucks to do a couple thousand acres, and uh, for a lot of folks that have that land the net present value analysis or how much the return will be over the time period is negative. So it's not economically rational if you're going to like reforest for timber or for otherwise. So we're, we're asking people to spend a couple million bucks out of altruism to generally reforest. And that works for some of those landowners and land managers who are stewards, but in a lot of ways, like where does that capital come from? And, to to really make this scalable in a significant way it's what we provide is reforestation at no upfront cost we have the carbon removal credits they are the collateral for a project finance loan that helps us pay for that couple million bucks that's needed to go spend three years and prepare the site which means for a lot of sites uh, you've got dead standing trees and if you've ever started a campfire, you'll know that the best way to start a campfire is not with greenwood but with old burned wood. That's all fuel for the next fire. So you've got to take that down because they they are a safety hazard for workers when they fall over and kill people. They're a safety hazard for our, for trees once planted, when they fall over and roll down a hill, they take out a lot of the uh, small fragile uh, seedlings. And so you know that's preparing the site. Uh, and then spending the next three years getting it planted, having third parties come out and verify the the species, we utilize a mix of species, we utilize seed from as close to the fire as possible, utilizing seed zones, and then create an endowment so that over the next 100 plus years, the growth of the trees is monitored and verified by a third party land trust, um, so that they're protected. Over the next hundred plus years, and then there's the registering of the site and selling the credits, and we've sold to um, Time, CO2, Shopify, others. So that's kind of the high level of how the carbon removal works and how we think about some of the practices. Um, happy to happy to dig in deeper on any of those pieces.
1: So it sounds to me like setting up the endowment then helps to uh, uh, guarantee that the offsets that are a part of the credits actually come to fruition. Mm-hmm.
0: That's correct.
1: And let's talk about the supply chain. I think uh, when people think of reforestation, that's a, an aspect that I think you just kind of assume the tree will grow, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> I wager to guess. You mentioned seed zones, like how do you collect the proper seeds for that region before there's a fire?
0: Yeah. Well, and this is where we take the name Mast and where we rebranded from drone seed to Mast is really to like kind of take on the like much bigger picture of what we do and some of that seed collection. So a seed zone is um, about the size of a county. So I think intuitively people would know that despite the fact that there are regions where Doug fur native in washington and arizona that if you took a an arizona dug fur and you moved it up to washington state near the canadian border it might not do as well and i think most people would intuitively be like i don't know why that i think that that but i would just think that and that is absolutely the case (laughs) <laughs> so, these seed zones kind of capture those microclimates, and there's a number of, of aspects to it where the seed has evolved to suit that. Whether it's the you know north face or south face of a big mountain range, east or west, or I'm thinking in sort of the western 11 states, uh, what's the elevation? Um, these are a number of the like aspects that get taken into account. And so, We collect as close to the the fire or we try and we play this game of Battleship where it's like we have all these seed zones in the western 11 states. And then our goal is for those seed zones that have forests, we want to make sure that we have inventory. And trees, conifers specifically, are difficult in that they do, they're not corn and wheat. They don't pump out seed every year and you can just go get it. It's stochastic. It is variable. So it may be that we don't have a big, plentiful crop of cones, which is where the seeds are, for maybe you know one time in 10 years. And so if we don't capture a mast event, kind of like a gaggle of geese or a pride of lions, a mast is a, is a big, uh, bountiful crone, cone crop, then it might be the last time for a decade that we can get seed for that species in that seed zone. And it's not like it's like, Every 10 years, all the trees like talk to each other and they're like, great, pump out all the cones. And so we get in there and collect. And and you look from an evolutionary perspective, like it makes sense because if trees pumped out these bountiful crops of cone every year, well, the squirrel and rodent populations would explode. So they do it much more intermittently. And we've taken that into a place where we utilize a lot more software so that we can answer a question from a landowner like they've got they fi- they've had a fire event happen. Uh, they call us and say, hey, do you have seed? We need to be able to answer that question in 30 seconds or less. Also, we need to be able to direct collectors to what are the seed zones that don't have inventory. So those are some of the things that we utilize the software that we've built in house for our for our team um, to do.
1: Okay. And and one of the projects you're working on is reforesting 2700 acres outside of Yellowstone National Park. Can uh-huh. you tell us about that project? And and what you're doing there?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and this is where like it's always fun to have a protagonist here. Um, this is a this is a, a family forest, and the family got impacted by uh, wildfire, and like, what are their options? This is an area that it's going to take sixty to eighty-five years for those trees to grow. That is a lot of time to wait for if you're going to replant and reforest for timber, and does it, and it's going to cost a couple million bucks. There's not that capital available. So we we met with Don, we worked with a consulting forester. So this is um, somebody who has a lot of experience with the, you know, I'm going to paraphrase here and say microclimates, with the microclimates and what grows, what doesn't, uh, the ecosystems, a local community member. And they had really, really, really uh, struggled to get scale in a prior project of 100 plus years, which had a tremendous amount of outpouring from the community to get 100 acres reforested with donations and tree planting efforts, etc. But it was a monumental effort. And so looking at like 2,700, 3,000 acres, what is, you know, how how is that going to get scaled? So Zach Bashur with uh, Bashur Land Management reached out and was was like, hey, I need help. And that's exactly where we, we fit. And so what we looked at was what was the seed supply situation? And there, there just was not sufficient seed. So we got lucky that year and were able to collect utilizing tree climbers, send tree climbers up to the top of trees, collect cones. Um, there were a couple species that we could collect from. In this case, like we, yes, we do a polyculture. It's not a monoculture. Um, we've got to have forests that'll last for a hundred plus years. Uh, in fact, we want them to last like 10 times that. So getting a mix of species will make a more resilient forest and getting that seed from as close to the site as possible. We send that to Silva Seed. Uh, we break it down. We grow at Silva Seed. And then in 2022, we acquired Cal Forest. Um, so we grow the majority of California's trees. And that's a lot of greenhouse grow space. So grow, grew those trees and then get them out to site and get them um, replanted with contracting crews. So now we've uh, reforested uh, that. uh, We have more work to do there because it takes us a couple of years to get these projects done, but then we'll submit it to a third-party methodology, in this case, Climate Action Reserve. We'll work with them to utilize a a approved and accredited third-party forester who will, after a year, review and say, Hey, these are, these are my, my plots. I've gone out randomly, like selected these plots found, uh, this is the survival and establishment rate of these planted trees and submit that to climate action reserve. And then based off of really like solid data that we know from, uh, a hundred plus years as, uh, the forestry community, both the timber companies and the forest service and academic, uh, academics, like how fast are these trees going to grow and how, how much carbon are they going to capture? Not only we have the data sets and the knowledge from a, the, a whole industry, uh, growing around timber that, you know, wants to know how many two by fours am I going to get off an acre, but we also have the, the trees, uh, immediately adjacent that are, that are not burned that have tree rings that are a library for how much carbon, how much growth is going to acc- accrue over the next hundred plus years. And so that, that based on that, we can make a very conservative forecast. Then that is, to, uh, you know, said so two by fours per acre, we're getting tons per acre, just a conversion of units there. And that gives us the ability to say, great, over the next hundred plus years, this many, you know, thousand, hundred thousand tons plus will be captured over, uh, over that time period. And so that's the forward looking carbon removal credit. And then, yeah, and then we can get into some of the mechanics of what that looks like going forward. And then that is what gets sold to uh, other entities who are able to make that claim, like we've paid for the removal of 100,000 uh, tons over the next 100 plus years.
1: Thank you. Uh, on the show, we've, we've talked about carbon credits a lot uh, from different aspects. And um, something that's come up in those discussions and when I'm starting to see just sort of out in in the industry. It seems like there's this divide growing in the decarbonization community around selling these offsets. It's either a natural method like planting trees or these industrial methods, right? And which, you know, they're easier to measure, okay, but they're more expensive. And, you know, Bill Gates famously drew some ire a couple months ago about, you know, planting trees is, quote, complete nonsense, and he doesn't plant them, right? And he got a lot of flack for that. So uh, what would what would you say to those people who are pushing industrial solutions over natural ones?
0: All of the above are what's needed. I've previously fra- like framed it as, like, all hands on deck. And in the same way that, like, trees are not a silver bullet to climate change. It is also direct air carbon capture or ocean based or lime based or biochar is also not a silver bullet there is not a silver bullet like period and like the way i'd love for people to think about it is Sometimes people get fixated on one particular solution in the same way that if you look at like the Avengers or X-Men, people have their their favorite superhero and they're just there for Hulk or Thor or whatnot. They could care less about all the other superheroes. So this is something that I really want to see is that this is less of a like, our solution is the best solution and it's the only solution. And it's much more of a like, we need all the solutions. So that's my 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 general like, high-level overview on that. Now, specifically for reforestation, I mean, let's put the numbers in perspective. California's 2020 wildfire season emitted 160 million plus tons of carbon into the, the atmosphere. If we look at 18 years of policy wins the changing the the electricity mix, different vehicle types, etc. The avoided emissions are something like 60 million uh, metric tons. this comes out of an ecosphere paper. It was covered with the LA Times. And so like, great, 160 million tons in one fire season versus 60 million tons from 18 years of hard won policy efforts. Okay, so now that 160 million tons is not going to get recaptured if a lot of that forest is not coming back. And actually, I'll tease this here. We're working on uh, a method in which 70 to 80% of those emissions uh, come from the trees that are dead, standing dead trees, starting to fall over, break down, and uh, emit methane and other forms of carbon into the atmosphere. And we're working on how might we... In addition to doing the reforestation, as long as we're going to do that site preparation early, how might we eliminate that 70 to 80% of that 160 million metric tons in one to three years after a fire? And uh, so I'll, we're not ready to make some announcements on how that's going, but that's something that we're, we're working on there.
1: And, and I once read, you know, we're talking about uh, bringing these forests back and, and recapturing all that carbon and one of the... Um, the challenges uh, uh, in the past has been this concept that you know you can plant a tree but you're not guaranteed that it's actually going to grow into a mature tree right and actually capture back that carbon and then you look at these huge mega fires that we've been having crown fires and it's just the heat coming from these fires is so great that they speculate that that it's killing the entire seed bed, you know, 10, 15 feet down. It's so hot, it's killing everything. Um, And, you know, of course, that mycelial network that is formed by the mushrooms, the forests, everything relies on that network. And I'm curious to know, like, does your work, the work that you're doing with the reforestation of the seedlings, do you also prepare the land in a way to help regrow that mycelial network?
0: So we are utilizing much more sophisticated greenhouses to kind of train the seedlings. And similar to kind of training for any athletic competition, you wouldn't just like sign up for an, an Iron Man, never having done one, and then just sort of show up and be like, I hope it works. You would want to do some training and preparation. <laughs> and so what does that look like for a seedling? Well, it means like, well, you're not, you, you got to start off and get the seedling out of out of infancy and grown a little bit and baby it. And But then you got to get it to work a little bit and start reducing uh, light exposure, water, Nutrients, etc., things like that, and so that's really what we where we focus, which is much more sophisticated greenhouses than have ever been used in the reforestation uh, sector.
1: Okay, so then, so do you assume then that once you uh, plant these seedlings, the nutrients in the soil and the mycelial network will naturally grow back because of the the contents of the fire plug in the seedling when you plant it?
0: Yeah. Well, what we want to do there is get the seedlings um, and get them established. And what the critical resource there is water. As they start to establish, that avoids uh, invasive species coming in, especially as they start to get into years three, five, seven. Depends on the species and the ecosystem. So I have to speak in, in pretty, pretty high generalities there. And then that starts to Shade soil over time, which allows other vegetation that's native to not get baked um and then some of that natural regeneration to occur.
1: The thing that sort of concerns me looking into the future is like what you're doing is very impressive, and you're only one company right and we've We have just thousands of acres that have burned just in the past year. I mean Canada was on fire for five months, and um. Uh, and California as well, and montana all these states and around the world right um there's wildfires everywhere and uh, what is what is your perspective on what the future holds for the world's forests when you consider climate change impacts and and um and other things happening within within the world here
0: yeah, I think about it very much and uh the- many people be familiar with this saying you broke it you fix it we broke it uh we got to fix it and i think that that's very much in the in the vein of again trees not a silver bullet so we have to decarbonize and we have to do so as fast as possible and and at the same time we need to be protecting and investing in our the ecosystem services is one way to say it. Other people like to say it as co-benefits, but basically, it's all of the the operating system that we rely on that provides the clean air, the the cold clean water, and the biodiversity that we all rely on. And let me like drive that home to much more specific. That three thousand acres at Sheep Creek in Montana that we talked about, like I think about that as the land managers, landowners are providing through those forests, a couple of things, those trees are cleaning the air. They're removing pollution out of the air. That's carbon credits, that's carbon removal credits. That's super valuable and we're, we've come up with a credit system to say that's worth this much. The other things that trees are doing there are they're shading the creeks. Uh, my hometown, Portland, the clean water services, they got faced with, well, we can either have a, a river that is too hot for salmon um, and we can invest a couple, you know, a hundred million bucks in a water chiller plant, or we can plant trees and shade all the creeks flowing into that river. Everywhere we can get a tree, let's get a tree as long as, you know, not too high density and they opted for the trees. Why they're way more, they're way more highly evolved. They require far fewer inputs. They don't need capex and loans and a bunch of other, other inputs over the next hundred plus years with they, they just, they need sunlight and water. And so I think like we look at that, that's the cooling of the water. And if we look at what the cost of a desalination plant or water treatment plant is, like trees are performing that service as well. And this can be measured in the inch acres of water that sits behind a dam when uh, an area is... Decimated by a fire, how much water flows downstream is reduced, and farmers deeply depend on that water. Cities depend on that water to be able to have clean, clean, fresh drinking water that's cold and as a suitable habitat. And so we look at all of that and go, okay, well, we need to be investing in that. We need to be paying for that and cultivating that. And it's a, maybe a less comfortable place for some people to say, you know, similar to the insurance industry, which has to say, like, what's the value of a human life to like, quantify that? Uh, it feels maybe a little like, not not in line with, with some spirituality or the altruism that people expect. But the alternative is, is that we're relying on altruism and that Don and his family will take a couple million bucks out of their savings. And that in 60 to 85 years, you know, somebody will see a return on that. Uh, and it doesn't make economic sense for them to do so. And quite often, those families, those land managers don't have that capital up front to begin with. So, where's the money going to come from? And I'm much less willing to, to like, sort of bet on people's altruism. I want to, I believe in it. It exists. It clearly happens. But that's not a scalable, sustainable strategy to res- restoring and scaling reforestation to the levels that we need to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. So, I think that that's a hopefully that's maybe a longer winded answer. But I think it's very much like we start to establish what the values are and that people need to get paid for providing those services. And then how do we measure, well, what's the extent of the services they're providing? And that's really where we're starting to create that that connection so that there are funds available that are not just out of the, the goodness of people's heart.
1: Earthlings. Would you have ever thought that the words supply chain and tree seedlings would go in the same sentence? (laughs) I did not. And I really appreciate that Grant and his team are thinking about how we restore our forests at scale. Because if you think about it, you know, like the example that he gave with uh, the California wildfires emitting 160 million tons of CO2 in a given season. That's a lot of CO2 and we have to get it back. So we want to ensure that our forests regrow. Uh, Otherwise, we're not even standing still. We're moving backwards. So keep your ear to the ground to see what mass reforestation is able to accomplish and we will be watching them as well. Our restoring faith in humanity segment comes to us from the Caribbean where sperm whales have found an unexpected permanent haven. Sperm whales are actually one of the ocean's most nomadic creatures. And they use these waters near Dominica, roughly 300 square miles, as their breeding ground. So they come back there every year to breed. And the Prime Minister Roosevelt Skerritt has officially designated this area as the world's first sperm whale reserve. It spans 800 square kilometers for our metric users. and. It says that no commercial shipping or fishing activities can be conducted in that area beyond the preserve. What I think is really cool about this is that scientists say it'll help fight the climate crisis. How you ask sperm whale poop. Hear me out on this. Sperm whales dive very deep up to 10,000 feet or 3000 meters. And when they dive, their bodies sort of shut down non-vital activities like digestion and you guessed it, defecation. So when they come back to the surface, they poop. This adds a tremendous amount of nutrients to the water and it promotes plankton blooms. And like trees, planktons capture carbon dioxide. And when the plankton dies, it drags that CO2 to the ocean's floor. Now, how long that CO2 would stay sequestered on the ocean's floor. That's a totally different question. Um, but regardless, establishing this reserve has these second and third order effects that might not have originally been anticipated when the idea for a preserve first came about. So as you go about your life, think about how the good you do multiplies beyond your imagination. On this beautiful blue green space flower that we call home.
0: Hey, listeners! This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.